Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 173. Well, we're back on track now to finish up the rest of the topics in the Garrison investigation. And the first one I want to tackle is Perry Russo's second lie detector test. You may recall from previous episodes that he was given an initial test administered by Roy Jacobs. He underwent a sodium pentothal session as well. And then, subsequent to the preliminary hearing where he testified, Officials made an attempt at administering a second lie detector test, this time administered by Edward O'Donnell. What happened next is the subject of today's episode, as it became a very controversial part of the passion play that we call the Garrison Investigation. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 173 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. By the time of the Clay Shaw trial, Ed O'Donnell had become the assistant commanding officer of the Homicide Division in New Orleans. But in 1967, at the height of the investigation and around the time that Clay Shaw was indicted for conspiracy, O'Donnell was still a sergeant, and he was in charge of the polygraph function at the New Orleans Police Department. He himself was a competent polygraph technician. On May 23rd, the garrison team was informed that NBC's Walter Sheridan had contacted Roy Jacob. Roy Jacob had given Russo his first polygraph test. The garrison team was now aware that Sheridan was aware that Russo had failed the first test. And Sheridan was going to include comments from Roy Jacob on the NBC national television white paper special, which was due to be on NBC in the near future. Faced with that prospect, Garrison ordered Russo to take another polygraph so that it could be administered and the results would be available prior to the NBC special. Garrison wanted that in his pocket if the first lie detector test results were made public. Russo took the second test on June 19, 1967, and it was administered by Ed O'Donnell. The polygraph started and ended quickly after only a couple of questions were administered. Russo was intensely nervous, and that may have contributed. He was having trouble answering the simple questions that these types of tests sometimes begin with, such as, were you born in New Orleans? You will hear more details in a moment on what happened when O'Donnell shut the machine off and ceased the test and then dismantled the wiring almost as soon as the test began. And he did so because of Russo's erratic pneumograph tracing and physical movements. It is what allegedly happened at that moment that caused one of the biggest stirs in the entire investigation. Russo, according to O'Donnell, began a catharsis of sorts, engaging in what Patricia Lambert would characterize as a succession of disclosures, including what she considered to be the most damaging, 
which was that Clay Shaw had not been at Ferry's assassination plot party. That is not exactly what he said, by the way, but that is the way that Patricia Lambert characterized it. But we'll get to all that in a moment. (laughs) Remember the slog? As Patricia Lambert describes it in her book, False Witness, as soon as Russo left, O'Donnell made a beeline to Garrison's office, where, in the presence of James Alcock, one of the assistant attorneys, O'Donnell told Garrison what had just occurred with Russo. According to Lambert's account, Garrison simply went into a rage, yelling, Jesus Christ, that son of a bitch is sold out to the CIA. He's sold out to NBC. Garrison knew that outside factors were doing their best to get at Russo, and those outside forces included Walter Sheridan. But that was only the beginning of the saga associated with Ed O'Donnell and the Perry Russo polygraph affair. Later that same day, two of Garrison's prime principal investigators, Lynn Loisel and Louis Ivon, would make their way to O'Donnell's office. According to Patricia Lambert, they were there to give Ed a very specific message, and I quote, they told me it would be better for everyone if I forgot what happened. Well, O'Donnell would do everything but forget what happened, and as soon as the investigators left his office, he began to dictate a memo on exactly what did occur. And we're going to get to that memo in just a second. But the next day, he sent copies of this dictated memo to certain key officials, including the superintendent of police and other key officials in the law enforcement hierarchy. And O'Donnell took a copy, likely the original, and personally brought it to Garrison himself. The word was out. Russo had hesitation. Garrison, at that moment, must have made a decision that O'Donnell was simply not on the team. Obviously, in response to what Lynn and Lou Ivon had said to him, he had simply ignored it. And his delivery of that memo was clear, de facto evidence that what had gone on that morning between Russo and O'Donnell, what was said that morning between the two men behind closed doors, was not something that O'Donnell was just going to forget about. It was not going to disappear, and it was clear that O'Donnell knew the implications of all of this. Russo was not only the star witness, but he was the only witness that truly tied the alleged group of conspirators together in the assassination planning that went on at the party at David Ferry's apartment. And now, here, Perry Russo was essentially balking. Russo was not only the star witness, but he was the only witness that truly tied the alleged group of conspirators together in the assassination planning that went on at the party at David Ferry's apartment. And now, here, Perry Russo was essentially balking. Garrison's team was under extreme pressure, and their whole case was falling apart because the government, in their eyes, had gotten into the head of their one key witness. O'Donnell saw it differently, though. What would happen next was quite interesting. Several weeks later, Garrison would call O'Donnell into a meeting without telling him in advance what it was all about. The meeting took place in Garrison's office. When O'Donnell arrived, Garrison was already waiting, along with James Alcock, Moose Chambra, and Perry Russo. 
and perhaps one other individual from Garrison's team. In Grand Garrison style, he would then hand O'Donnell's report to Russo and simply look at Russo and say, did you say this? According to Patricia Lambert, apparently Russo read the report and began to hem and haw. It was not clear how he was going to answer that question. And then O'Donnell made a decision that Garrison would later make him regret. O'Donnell decided to tell a lie in order to try to tease out the truth from Russo. In those days, you might call it a good cop, bad cop routine. As the meeting progressed, O'Donnell interjected, attempting to communicate to Russo that the conversation these two men had engaged in a few weeks back, right after O'Donnell had shut off the polygraph machine, was not so private after all. In fact, O'Donnell effectively stated that he had taped it. It was this awful little lie that O'Donnell thought would get Russo to tell the truth. O'Donnell, in fact, well, he had not taped the conversation. Russo admitted that the statements contained in O'Donnell's memo, the statements indicating that Russo had effectively recanted his testimony, were true. There seems to be no doubt that Russo indeed waffled at the moment that he took the second polygraph test about Shaw being there, being present that night at David Ferry's. He made those statements only in the presence of O'Donnell. Later, Russo would find his voice again and eventually give stronger testimony at the trial itself. But this earlier event is significant, and for all us as jurors, it should be fully disclosed and viewed from its proper context. What might have caused this young man to vacillate? Well, first he was young. He was in his 20s. And now here he was, the principal witness testifying in the murder trial of the President of the United States. And he was testifying about a meeting where he had attended and later said nothing until after the assassination occurred. There was lots to be nervous about if you were Perry Russo. And then there was Walter Sheridan. Walter Sheridan, during the course of this investigation, attempted to bribe Perry Russo. And in those days, there was no mechanism to prosecute people like Walter Sheridan for obstruction of justice. But Garrison found a way to get at him. More on that later. And the bribery attempt as well. At the Clay Shaw trial, O'Donnell would be called to testify by the defense team and not as a witness for the prosecution. Effectively, O'Donnell, a lieutenant by that time, would testify on behalf of the defense, sadly recounting Russo's second polygraph experience. The jurors at the Clay Shaw trial had a chance to hear Ed O'Donnell give testimony, and you'll get a chance to hear that testimony too, word for word, in just a moment. And we'll hear at least portions of what Perry Russo had to say at trial as well about all of this too, <laughs> but only a few snippets that are relevant as his testimony at the trial takes up 544 pages. Don't worry, we only need to listen to a few to uh, get the response to this matter. But first, before we go to trial testimony, let's all read together O'Donnell's memorandum that he put together on the day of that second polygraph test. It's fairly short. 
This memo has been reproduced word for word in the appendix of Patricia Lambert's false witness, and our reading will be from that source. So here goes. It's on Detective Bureau letterhead, and it was dated June 20th, 1967. It was addressed to Jim Garrison, District Attorney of the Parish of Orleans, and it was from Sergeant Edward O'Donnell. The subject was Perry Russo interview. Notice it didn't say polygraph. Sergeant Edward O'Donnell would report that sometime in the beginning of June 1967 of being summoned to Mr. Andrew Shambra's office. Upon meeting Mr. Shambra in the district attorney's office, he requested that I give a polygraph examination to one Perry Russo. I told him I would be available any time for the service. He informed me that Perry Russo would like to meet me prior to the taking of this test as he had a bad experience with Roy Jacob when he took a polygraph test sometime this past year. Mr. Shambra would reiterate that he felt Roy Jacob used improper polygraph technique and had antagonized Perry Russo in doing so. On Friday afternoon at approximately 3 o'clock p.m., June 16, 1967, Mr. Shambra brought Perry Russo to the polygraph room located at police headquarters. I spoke with Perry Russo for approximately one hour at this time. During this interview, Perry Russo inquired about the nature of the polygraph examination. He wanted to know how it works. I explained the technique to him. He then suggested that I should ask him 10 or 12 questions, which he would submit to me, and that he would purposefully lie to some of them and see if I could determine which ones he had lied to. I told Perry Russo that, to demonstrate the polygraph technique for him, he should pick a number and write it down on a piece of paper and then put this number in his pocket and not let me know what number he picked. During the test, he was to answer no to all of the questions, forcing him to lie about the number that he picked. This particular type of test is known as a peak of tension type B. The test was concluded, and I immediately told Perry Russo, the question that he had lied to. Arrangements for the test were then made with Mr. Shambra to have Perry Russo come back within the next few days to take a standard polygraph examination relative to the case in point. should be noted that while Perry Russo was in the polygraph room at this time, it was impossible to obtain a polygram which could be evaluated. This was because of the subject's erratic pneumograph tracing which could be caused by general nervous tension, or by the fact that the person intended to lie during the test. Perry Russo explained that when tubing was placed on his chest, it caused an uneasy feeling. Perry Russo and Mr. Chambra then left this office, stating that they would contact me within the next few days to conduct further tests. On Monday, June 19, 1967, at about 1.45 p.m., Mr. Shambra brought Perry Russo to the polygraph room. Mr. Shambra then stepped outside and waited in the traffic office. I conducted an interview with Perry Russo from 1.45 p.m. until 3.45 p.m. A great deal of time was spent by Perry Russo talking about himself and his problems. I wrote out a list of questions which I intended to ask Perry Russo during the examination. These questions are as follows. Number one, were you born in New Orleans? Number two, are you 26 years of age? Number three, 
Do you intend to try to lie to me during this test? Number four, have you told me the complete truth about this matter? Number five, do you smoke cigarettes? Number six, did you know David Ferry? Number seven, were you ever at David Ferry's apartment on Louisiana Avenue? Number eight, did you ever watch TV? Number nine, did you ever see Clay Shaw at Ferry's apartment? Number 10, while at Ferry's apartment, did you ever meet a person named Leon Oswald? Number 11, did you ever drink coffee? Number 12, while at David Ferry's apartment, did you hear these people discuss ways to assassinate Kennedy? Number 13, did you take part in this discussion? Number 14, did you hear Shaw mention the assassination of Kennedy? The above questions were read to Perry Russo, and he was asked if he understood them and if he could answer yes or no to these questions. He stated that he could and that the questions were perfectly clear to him. I then put the necessary attachments on Perry Russo and attempted to give him a standard polygraph examination using the above-mentioned questions. After asking three questions, the test was stopped due to Perry Russo's erratic pneumograph tracing and his physical movements. Upon shutting off the instruments and taking the attachments from Perry Russo's body, the interview continued. Perry Russo expressed that he was under a great deal of pressure and wished that he had never gotten involved in this mess. I told him to forget about the pressures that I only wanted to obtain the truth from him relative to this case. It was explained to him that for his own peace of mind, he should examine his conscience and determine what the truth is. And once he does this, he can stand on the truth now or 10 years from now and not have any misgivings about what he has done. I then told him, you know the questions that I intend to ask you during this test. Is there anything you wish to clarify with me? I then asked him, was Clay Shaw at this party? He replied, do you want to know the truth? I stated yes, and then he said, I don't know if he was there or not. I told Perry that Shaw was the type of a man that if you were to see him, he would stand out in your mind, and I asked him if he would give me a no or a yes answer to this question. He stated that if he had to give a yes or a no answer, he would have to say no. I then asked him why he went into court and positively identified Shaw as being at this party at David Ferry's apartment. He stated that Diamond, that is defense attorney Irv Diamond, referring to the questioning that went on in the preliminary hearing, that Diamond turned him on. The first question Diamond asked me was, do I believe in God? This is an area which I am highly sensitive about. He further stated that prior to going to the preliminary hearing, he was going to state that he did not know if Shaw was at this party or not at this party. I asked if this conversation he heard at David Ferry's apartment sounded like a legitimate plot to assassinate Kennedy. He stated no, it did not. It appeared to him like another bull session, like they were always having. 
he stated that quite frequently, he and other people would sit around discussing such topics as the perfect murder or ways of defrauding insurance companies and getting away with it. But this doesn't mean that they would actually do such a thing. He was then asked to describe the conversation which he heard at David Ferry's apartment, and he stated that this was very vague in his mind, and at this time he would not say who was saying what. He then expressed a desire to meet Clay Shaw. I asked him what reason he would want to have such a meeting, and he stated he would like to talk to Clay Shaw to size him up and to determine if he was the kind of a person that would take part in such a plot. He then expressed a desire to me to know the contents of Mr. Garrison's complete case against Shaw. I asked him why he wanted to know this, and he stated this would help him to come to a decision. I then told him that regardless of what Mr. Garrison has or does not have, he should make his own decision after examining his conscience and determining what the truth is. He then asked me if he could leave, and then he would call me later on in the week, and he would come back by himself, and then I would go ahead with the test. I agreed to this and took him outside and into the traffic office where he met Mr. Shambra. I then went upstairs to the district attorney's office where I met Mr. Garrison and Assistant District Attorney Mr. Alcock and informed them of this interview and what I had learned when conducting this interview. Respectfully submitted, Sergeant Edward O'Donnell. Okay, let's be clear here. O'Donnell was a Garrison opponent, and whether he got that way because of just what was happening in the JFK investigation, it's not entirely clear. But there are those, including Joan Mellon, who believe that O'Donnell was an opponent of Garrison in general, and it was not necessarily about the JFK investigation per se. O'Donnell would be active in other areas of the investigation and the trial, and he would eventually give testimony against Garrison's actions as it related to other topics. He was apparently present during a quarrel which occurred inside of Garrison's office about whether to use Vernon Bundy and put him on the stand during the trial. As you recall, Vernon Bundy was the heroin addict that saw an interaction between Clay Shaw and Lee Harvey Oswald. O'Donnell would later go on record of his personal recollection of Garrison's statements that day when Garrison and his staff argued about whether to put Bundy on the stand. He would say that Garrison said, and I quote, I don't care if Bundy is lying or not. We are not telling him to lie. We are going to use him. These statements were later made available during the Christenberry hearing a hearing that you heard about in a prior episode. And Garrison would take the stand at that hearing, and when he was asked, under oath, if he had said that, Garrison did not deny it. He simply refused to answer. O'Donnell's participation in the Christenberry hearing would also see him repeat his story of Perry Russo's recanting that occurred on the date of the second polygraph test. That would be important testimony in the outcome of that hearing. O'Donnell continued to advance his career and ended up as chief of homicide in the New Orleans Police Department. 
We really don't know O'Donnell's motivations, but clearly he was against what Garrison was doing at the time. And he called Irving Diamond to offer his testimony. He would tell Patricia Lambert that he just couldn't sit idly by and see an innocent man persecuted. Maybe so. Maybe not. But either way, whether you see him as a hero or a heel, there was no doubt it was a hell of a decision on his part as a member of the New Orleans police force to step forward and offer testimony to the defense in any case, let alone this one. Regardless of what your view of O'Donnell was, it was an unpopular decision to offer up such testimony against the prosecuting machinery, and more specifically to challenge Jim Garrison in that way. Garrison was powerful. More than just O'Donnell's courage in this, it points to how powerful the forces were in opposition to Garrison. O'Donnell thought that the Clay Shaw case would never go to trial, but it did. At the trial, Ed O'Donnell would take the stand on the same day that Clay Shaw would step up and provide his own testimony in his own defense, an act of perjury. Thank you for listening to episode 173 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.